Hi, my name is Bob, and I'm an alcoholic. <clears throat> to the grace of God, the power of the A program, I haven't found enough story. What the hell is going on? Brown organized this, I can tell right now. For those of you that are listening to the tape, 20 people just walked in front of the podium and set a whole new row in front of me. Brown shirts for Bill. This is kind of an intimidation squad. To the grace of God and the power of the A program, I haven't had a drink since the 10th of December 1967, and for that I'm very grateful. I would... I want to thank my host and hostess, Kim and Pat. They've been great hosts. I want to thank Tony. Dave. Tony tried to get me last year, and I think I was kind of a pain in the neck. I didn't answer for a long time. And, and uh, I want to thank the committee. It's been a nice roundup, and it's come at a nice time for me, and I'm glad I got to have breakfast with my good friend Dick and a number of other friends and uh, share. Don and Gary have been longtime friends of mine, and Julie, and kind of feel like brothers in the program. I, you know, always kind of envy you guys when you talk about that crew that you had from Denver, and now as time goes on, you just feel like you're part of a crew, part of people who are pulling the wagon. As some of our old-timers die, every once in a while when you see someone of great stature and alcoholics anonymous die, you just know that one guy can't pull that wagon probably, so we get a couple of us and we get behind it and we start pulling it. And uh, it's kind of scary to see the old-timers. I'm glad that Bill is here with 42 years it's, uh, you know, people want to be with the big guys. In uh, 27 years of sobriety or 26 years of sobriety, I want to be with the guys who got 30 and 33 and 40 and 45. They're my heroes when I came in. And if we don't keep coming, uh, it is not a good feeling when you're my age and stand up and you're the oldest guy at a conference. It's only happened to me twice, but it, you know, it's not cool. You know, you kind of wonder what the hell is going on. Richard, it was, a good, it was a good countdown, but you can't go by half decades the first deal and give everybody else individual attention. I mean, your great sponsor over here with 29 years of sobriety, almost 30, stood up with the group. I mean, that is just, uh, would have gotten to stand up all by himself if we would have gone year by year. And um, I would have had to stand up with Fritz regardless, so it wouldn't have worked out for me, but I think you know, Dick would have been all alone. I think he probably noticed that. And uh, <coughs> nice to see Joe A here. We have, it's always kind of funny. I go someplace and listen to Joe, and then I get to come, he gets to come to meetings. And I don't go to meetings where I don't talk anymore, Joe. I think, you know, it's just. <laughs> and I think early on it's important that you go to meetings where you don't talk. But I think, you know, you got to choose, and, you know, it's. It's, uh, but I like, it was interesting that talk last night of Burns was an interesting talk. I was, you know, kind of rolling around in my head what that was going to be like. I'd, I have an opinion on everything from hemorrhoids to brain surgery, and <laughs> prior to hearing the talk, I, I, I liked it. I think he did a, a good job, and I think it was an unusual but fine program. And uh, Don, I'd met before and got to hear Donna's story, and I sure like that, and Gary I know and love, and Don P. Uh, Clara was quite a talk this afternoon, or uh, this morning. 
I really uh, didn't get a chance to meet her husband, but I want to give him my condolences and congrat <laughs> congratulate him on his program. I think that's... I had a... Um, I came here from Texas. I was vacationing with my wife and part of the time alone, part of the time with my wife. So I had to change my reservation, and I forgot to tell the committee that I changed my reservation. And so I was flying here, and did not, I did not remember that I didn't tell the committee until I'm on the airplane flying from Dallas rather than flying from St. Paul, Minnesota. So I'm, I almost missed my plane, did an idiot thing. I'm really mellowed out, and I'm in the Dallas airport, and I'm on one of those trams. Got off at the wrong place. A little brain damage, nothing serious. They tell you those cells grow back, but they never tell you when. And I came within five minutes of missing my plane. And uh, when I got here, no one was here to pick me up. And I, I left messages on answering services with Tony and with, with Kim. But we got it all figured out. Pat is from South Bend, Indiana. Last year, South Bend, Indiana, I show up to go give an AA talk at Notre Dame. No one picks me up. I'm looking around the airport. I wait there 45 minutes. No one picks me up. Not a big airport. <clears throat> and I see someone walking around with a sign saying, Uncle Bob. And I thought, what the hell? I'll go ask. And I went over... <clears throat> went over and asked, and they weren't looking for me, they are looking for their uncle, and, um, so I called my wife at home, got the name of the woman who was my contact, called her, she's at the banquet, and uh, a friend of hers in the apartment, and he said, I'll come get you, I said, no, no, no I just, I'll take a cab, he said, no, so he come and got me, I went downtown, it turns out, what happened was, a guy got off the airplane, they walked up to a guy, and these guys had heard my tape, which is a little makes this thing even more unusual, but they walked up to a guy and they said, are you Bob? He said, yeah. And they said, are you a friend of Bill's? And the guy said, yeah. So they threw him in the car. Uh, he's got honest, the guy. The guy is an 83-year-old retired admiral. He's there for a funeral. Threw him in the car, took him to the banquet. He, he ordered a bourbon and water when he got to the banquet. Now they know something's going on. And they figure it out, and they come down to get me. They had to drive this guy 50 miles to a family, you know, funeral. So I, I do have kind of recurring dreams that I'm going to end up in the wrong city and screw it up. This year I have had more screw-ups with my calendar than I've ever had before. So I want to talk a little bit about what it was like for me and what happened and what I'm like today. I started drinking when I was 13 years old. A lot of the people here this weekend started drinking pretty early and stopped pretty early. And I was, uh, uh, I don't know, when I graduated, when I started high school, I was 4 foot 11, I weighed 95 pounds. And I was, uh, I grew a foot in high school, but I was, I, in grade school, I got thrown out of grade school, I can't count the times, like I said, I was attention deficit, you know, it's interesting that Burns was talking about that, I have two kids that are attention deficit. I was always in trouble. I was just, you know, and it wasn't huge stuff, it was just stuff. We had three of us that were separated by class. We could be in different, you know, we had three classes in my eighth grade, you know, and they could never put all three of us together in one class, you know, or that kind of guy. There's still no, one thing I like about living in the same city that you grew up in, you get to see these guys and they're, they all did pretty well. So it's kind of interesting that we were the screw-ups and we're all uh, kind of hanging in there. And, but I was always compensating. I was always, uh, I guess I was always one of the youngest kids in my class. My young, you know, I reached puberty when I was about 35. You know, I just never, you know. And uh, 
the boys in our family were premature, grew slowly, and I was always trying to compensate for being the smallest kid. I had a big mouth, and I always was looking for attention. Went to high school, went to a military academy, was on a college campus. We had fraternities. We drank like college students. Of my class, 125 kids in my high school class, I know 15 of us that are members of Alcoholics Anonymous. So we had a lot of, we did a lot of drinking, but we had a lot of recovery. It's kind of interesting to have 15 members of Alcoholics Anonymous of a class of 125. We drank. I almost died of alcohol poisoning in my junior year. I had a buddy who also almost died his senior year. Of my five closest friends, four of us are in AA and one's in Alana. So we did, we did a lot of drinking, a lot of false IDs, trying to learn where to go. There was a lot of private clubs and different things that we went to, and we drank at weddings and all the festivities. And drinking was a big deal for me and a big deal for us. And for some reason, I was able to drink. Even though I was smaller, I was able to drink as well as my friends, if not better. And I had a reputation as a drinker. By the time I finished high school, I had a big reputation as a drinker. I didn't think I had a problem drinking. I thought the problem was I was underage, and if you get caught when you're underage by the police or my father, it was always a big damn deal. And I thought I would always get drunk because I didn't want to get caught with just a couple of drinks and have my father knock my head off. You know, I wanted to have the job done. Figured out that if I could go someplace where I could drink like everybody else, my life had become normal. So I had a chance to go away to school. I took it. My drinking didn't become normal, or you'd probably have a different talker here this weekend. I went down to the University of Notre Dame. I drank my way out of, out of Notre Dame in the middle of my senior year. One day I just walked out. Had my yearbook, had my class ring. I just ran my string out. I was in civil engineering carrying 25 credits a semester, and when you only go to school about one day out of two weeks, it starts to catch up with you. Even, even if you cheat, it catches up with you. And I was in deep doo-doo. Kind of tough to buff your way through a thermodynamics exam. You know, even for an alcoholic, that's a little tough. But... I've gone back to the University of Notre Dame twice. You know, people would ask where you went to school, kind of a social question, you know, and no one really gives a damn. It's kind of like, you know, but I care. It was always one of the pieces of failure that I, you know, thought I had, and it was. You know, you, you know, alcoholics don't know how to answer normal questions. Where'd you go to school? You don't know how much to tell them. There's this pause, you know, and, uh, you know, so I always had this kind of unfinished business about that. And when I was sober about 15 years, I got asked to go down there and give a talk. And I was down there and I got to go down on campus and I, I hadn't been on that campus since I walked out of there. And I was walking up down that campus looking at the kids and how young they were. And I couldn't believe that I was that young. I mean, it was... And I got to go to the dorm, and I tried to make some amends, and the guys I tried to make the amends with didn't remember me, you know, stuff that I blew all out of proportion, you know. And uh, I'm in the middle of my talk, and I said, I've always had a deep sense of failure about this place, and I said, I, I just figured out why. I said, I think it's because I failed. <laughs> um, <laughs> so if we're looking for deep insights tonight, we might be a little disappointed. I was due to be commissioned at summer as an officer in the Army, and I had to get a medical release. The medical release I got was for alcoholism. I was diagnosed an alcoholic when I was 19 years old. It got me out of the service when I left Notre Dame. I came home and I finished school at a local university, and when I finished school, my father asked me to leave the house. He said, we love you and we care about you, but there's six other kids in this family, and you're not, you're not following the rules, and it's kind of a mess, and it's not working, and good luck. And uh, so I went out to start my life over and become a success, and I took a position as a carry-out boy in a liquor store, and uh, I almost killed a little girl with a delivery truck right back, backing out of a driveway one day. I lost that job for going 80 miles an hour with the truck. Took a job as a waiter. That last year of my drinking, 
23 years old. You know, I'm working as a waiter downtown Minneapolis. I'm living in St. Paul six miles away. I think in the six or seven months I worked as a waiter, I made it home about ten nights. I just was sleeping with waiters and waitresses and different people in cheap hotels and apartments. You know Dr. Seuss, that child author? Those are actual photographs of people I lived with during that <laughs> period of time in my life. And uh, it was really the trough of my alcoholism. I got up in the morning and took a dexedrine or drank a couple of beers, went to work, worked as a waiter from 11 to 1 or 11 to 2, went and drank beer from 2 to 5, bought a fifth, put it in my locker, and worked as a waiter from about 6 to whenever the dining room closed. And then I had to go find a place to live. And I was getting pretty, pretty old, pretty quick. And uh, towards the end of that, I was at a party and I got the hell knocked out of me, and they wouldn't let me work as a waiter looking the way I looked. They didn't want me serving food, so they fired me. And I had no place to go. I was tapped, and I just, so I thought, i got to try to go home. I went home, and I asked if they'd take me back, and under certain conditions, they agreed to take me back, and I promised to follow the conditions like a good little drunk, and they let me back in the house. The conditions, of course, were that I didn't drink, and I then took my drinking outside the house, and from midnight on, I took the hinges off the liquor cabinet and stuff like that, sneaking my younger brothers and sisters could drink. I couldn't drink. And, uh, you know, alcoholism meant a lot of different things to me, but maybe what it meant more than anything else is about every six months I had to start my life over. Almost everybody in this room, whether you're an alcoholic or married to one or a son or daughter, one knows about starting over. We're always starting over. We don't finish a hell of a lot of things, but we sure do start over a lot. I think people assume when they look at us that our behavior looks so voluntary, it's like we, we choose to live our lives the way we're living it. I think that was one of the, also the interesting things. We, I think sometimes we overlook and forget how profoundly physical this disease is, and we think that we're making decisions to do things that we're doing compulsively. We're responsible for all, everything we do. Get that straight. One of the things I like about Alcoholics Anonymous, it empowers you. It doesn't disempower you by making you a victim. You're responsible for everything that happens in your life. But there are explanations, and we are ill. And I, I found that... Uh, Burns did a good job with pointing that out. It looked like I was voluntarily trashing my life. I wanted for me what my father wanted for me. I wanted for me what my mother wanted for me. But I never, I'd go out and I'd try to do it and the wheels would come off it. Seemed like I was a good starter but a poor finisher. And this time I put, I tried to reorder my life. I got engaged to be married and married Linda, who's my very lovely wife today. We had gone together for two or three years, broken up for that worst year of my drinking, and then got back together. She's a neat lady. She's an active member of Al-Anon, very important. My story is kind of tacky because I had problems in sobriety, and I know that most of you don't. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I know. You just came in here, and everything worked out, and it's okay. My, they try to pick these programs by uh, different, you know, we got nuns and free. I'm the guy who had problems in sobriety. This is kind of the tacky sobriety story. And... Uh, if my wife and I both did not have a program, I don't think we'd be married today. Because especially during those early years, our relationship and marriage was a lot different than either one of us expected it to be. And I, <coughs> our programs allowed us to turn the laser on ourselves rather than each other. I think we would have destroyed each other if we didn't have a way of just taking, giving each other space and getting well on our own time. And... Uh, so I got a job, I got a, as an executive trainee with a manufacturing concern, I bought a car and I thought, gee, it's, now it's going to happen. Only it didn't happen because I continued to drink in a difficulty. I couldn't shut it down. I don't, you know, my, 
my buddies, you know, some of those guys who were pretty wild in college, they could shut it down and get it going, but I couldn't shut it down. I just couldn't stop drinking. And I'm, now I'm in a corporation of engineers, and I'm, now I'm the company drunk. You know, Notre Dame and civil engineering, I stood out like Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. I mean, I, they, they petitioned to have me removed from the civil engineering class at Notre Dame. Scouts, you know, not proud of that <coughs> for being the class drunk. Now I'm in a whole company of them, and I'm, you know, I'm coming in late. I used up my sick leave in the first two months, you know, and I'm, you know, I'm just, I mean, I'm falling asleep at my desk, and I'm falling asleep in the john, and I'm, you know, they're paging me, and I'm stumbling down the hall with my legs asleep because I've been sleeping on the john. Real classy stuff, you know, but I'm in a suit, and I look good, you know, it's really, it's kind of no one's home, you know, <laughs> kind of a, a deal, and I, that wasn't working, and I quit that job about the time that I think I was going to be asked to leave that job. I took a job selling, had that job for about four months, and I went out on a four-day bender, and the first day or so I called in the next couple of days. I didn't call in, and I woke up after a 12-hour or three- or four-hour blackout in a friend's apartment and hadn't been to work. I didn't know if I had a job, a fiancé, or a place to live, and I was just panicked. You know, that you wake up real quick like someone just put a battery charger on your heart, you know, and you're up there, and I just, all of a sudden, the recommendation of my father that I call Alcoholics Anonymous was my psychiatrist. I was like, we badmouthed the medical profession. I was diagnosed as an alcoholic at 19 years of age by a psychiatrist who wanted me to go to Alcoholics Anonymous. I don't know what that, over the years, he'd call me and I'd go visit his patients. He knew I didn't play doctor, you know, he'd get a patient that was an alcoholic and I'd take him to meetings and that guy was a gift to me, you know. Uh, so, uh, I called in a group, got an old-timer on the telephone, he talked to me for about 15 minutes, and he called someone else, and he said, could you go to a cafe in about an hour and meet two guys? And I said, yeah, that I could, and I, he described the two guys, and an hour later, I didn't want to go. You know, I called work and found out I still had a job, and called Linda and found out I was still engaged, and called home and found out they were concerned rather than mad. And uh, I thought, you know, why'd you call AA? That's kind of an overreaction, you know. <laughs> kind of a, But I think that was one of the first of many examples of God working in my life. I felt some obligation to go. I didn't even know my name, but there was something about that conversation that felt special to me. And I went and met, and I, I went and met two guys at the St. Clair Broiler in St. Paul, Minnesota, and my life changed. We have many traditions in Alcoholics Anonymous and many gifts. One of the great traditions we have is that we share our experience, our strength, and our hope, rather than our ideas. There's a power in sharing who you are, and there's a power in sharing your life. Those men shared their life with me, and that day my life changed. That's pretty powerful. My life changed. I had never talked to anybody who had a drinking problem. I talked to all sorts of people who tried to help me, doctors and lawyers and judges and deans and presidents and policemen and I mean, I was brought to a hell of a lot of people to try to get help, but I had never talked to someone who sat down. I thought these guys were going to do what all experts do, ask me a bunch of questions, and then come up with a recommendation. And they sat me down in the booth and said, you don't know or understand this, but we're here as much for ourselves as we're here for you. We hope this works for you, but, you know, we're here because we find that we're able to stay sober by telling other people what we do. Let us tell you a little bit about ourselves, and they told me the story. As powerful an experience as I've ever had in my life. And I identified with them, and that night my life changed. And then that night I went to my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous in August of 1967. I drank twice after walking in Alcoholics Anonymous. 
once on a business trip to the West Coast after about 30 days, and once on my honeymoon, and we honeymooned in Acapulco. And you know where the divers dive off those cliffs? And I dove off those cliffs on my last trunk. <laughs> and um, over the years, I was fortunate we got to go back there. I think we went back there 15 times to this hotel where the divers dive off the cliffs, you know. And it's a, I, do, I, I mean, this was not, if you're picturing something very fancy and very classy, it was none of those things. I was the ugly American. I'm drunk, and I'm going over. I introduced myself to the ex-president of Mexico. And uh, his nephew had been my roommate for a while at Notre Dame, and he wasn't very impressed, or his bodyguards weren't very impressed with me. And uh, I dove off the public landing, climbed up, split my swimsuit, cut my leg. My wife is going absolutely crazy trying to get me down off that mountain, and she's just going nuts. And I'm up there. They dive from about 115 feet, and I was, I'm up about 80 feet, and I'm stuck. And I don't, you know, I, you know eight or nine planters punches and I'm standing on top of this goddamn rock and I'm I'm trying to decide whether the jump or dive I mean you you got to figure it out finally figured out screw it I'll dive and I dove and I made it would have jumped it would have died because you can't get out far enough to get to the middle of the water and I went, about 10 years after that I was standing my wife had given me a picture of that gorge for my 10th A anniversary and <laughs> We were, we were on the balcony watching a diver go off that cliff, and I said, God, that's the dumbest thing I've ever done. And she looked over at me, and she said, Bob, it's not even in the top ten. <laughs> so. How can two people live together and have such a different experience? I don't know how that works. I liked AA from the moment I walked in Alcoholics Anonymous. I was the guy who was out of tune. My life wasn't working. I wanted my life to work. I wanted, you know, I care about who I am in the world, and my, who I was in the world was crappy. I was doing a lot of tacky. We laugh when we talk about all the kind of exciting things we did, you know, and I could talk about a few others, but mostly my life was just tacky. It was just doing little crappy things to almost everybody you come in contact with. Just hundreds of crappy, tacky things to my parents, I mean, stealing money from them, and lying to them and car accidents and just all the sorts of things that, <clears throat> you know. And uh, so, I mean, I wanted an answer. And I'm uh, working and I'm not working very well and I'm in Alcoholics Anonymous and I found an answer and I want my life to change. And I came in with an attitude that, you know, was kind of, well, I'm not going to do that. I had the attitude that, okay, I'll buy it. I've got the problem, you've got the answer. Well, if I've got the problem, you've got the answer. I've got about five or six other things that are going on in my life that are causing me a lot of trouble, and if I've got the problem, you've got the answer, those five or six things ought to go away. And hell, it might take a year. Yeah, they didn't go away in a year. The first major experience, I'm going to back up just for a minute and do something I decided not to. I had to tear down my alibi system and tear down the wall that I had built up between you and me. Maybe that was the most profound experience I had in my early sobriety. I had a wall built up between you and me so you couldn't see the parts of me that I didn't want you to see. I did not know that wall was made of glass. I did not know that almost everybody who knew me well could see through it. I thought it was impenetrable. <clears throat> I thought it was an absolutely necessary part for protection of my psyche. I did an awful lot of crappy things. There were secrets that I had. I kept those secrets from everybody I thought. And I thought it made that you didn't know who I really was so that any advice you had for me didn't count. I could neutralize you by what you didn't know. But there comes a time, Clancy talks about 
If there ever was a flag in Alcoholics Anonymous that all of us could pledge our allegiance to, the flag would say, but I'm different. <laughs> Most of us have such a keen, powerful sense of uniqueness. And if we don't lose that sense of uniqueness, at least enough to be able to identify with the people who are going to die of the disease of alcoholism, because if you don't lose that sense of uniqueness, what worked for me will not work for you. And so if you cling to that too much, you look for the differences, and you'll difference yourself right out of Alcoholics Anonymous. So I had a tearing down that wall, started when I called AA, continued when I had conversation with my sponsor, and completed when I took my first fifth step. I tore that wall down, and for the first time in my life, I told another human being everything. I gave them the whole deck of cards. No one ever had the whole business about me before. But sober in Alcoholics Anonymous, I built that wall back up. Kind of interesting. I started to have problems in sobriety that I didn't think you should have. Automatically, when I have something going on that I don't think that you're supposed to have going on, I just cover it up. And uh, I'm a good enough talker that I could talk about some things that are going on. It looks like I'm kind of open. And then I'd hide other things that I didn't want to talk about. And I look back on it, it isn't even so much that I was hiding them. I talked to my sponsor about some of these things, and Warren seemed like almost he wasn't as alarmed about the issues that were going on in my life as I was. And I look back on that, and now I'm sponsoring 23- and 24-year-old guys, and I'm not as alarmed about some of those issues in their lives as they are. And I mean, they're serious issues, don't get me wrong, but 23-year-olds are often unmanageable. There's an awful lot of things about life you don't know. And a lot of my immaturity was chronological immaturity as well as underdevelopment because of alcoholism. There was a lot, I was comparing myself to 40 and 50, the maturity and stability of people who were in their 40s and 50s, and I wasn't anywhere near as stable as those guys. And I, you know, but my life, when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, I had five or six issues that were going on. I couldn't get up in the morning. Kind of tough deal. But it's tough to be at work at eight if you get up at eight. It's, um, it's not impossible for an alcoholic, but it's tough. It's really hard on the heart, and because uh, we're quick. I mean, if you want to know the truth, I mean, we are about as quick as anybody I've ever seen when you get motivated. I spent three or four hundred dollars more a month than I made. If you do that over a long period of time, you'll end up in debt. Um, I didn't like work. I never knew exactly what to do at work. I mean, I went there, and I was never quite sure what to do once you went. So I. Went late, left early, didn't know what to do. I'm married, don't know what to do about being married. My wife had a father who was a wonderful guy, home every night at 5 o'clock. I don't know if I'd gotten made at home at 5 o'clock. And uh, her expectation of what our marriage was like was very different than my, you know, ex- than the experience we were having. All of a sudden, I'm going to six or seven meetings a week, and she's seeing me less when we're married than when we were going together, and she's not thinking, this is real cool, and I'm, you know, she's starting to go to Al-Anon, she doesn't like Al-Anon, and, you know, it's just different. We're having kids, and we have, early, we now have three children, all boys, 20, 25, 22, and 13. But we have the first two boys, and, you know, even wonderful parents made a few mistakes, and I wasn't going to make the mistakes that my parents made, and I didn't. I made the mistakes they made, and a whole bunch they never thought of. <laughs> I was immature impatient, angry, and sometimes violent. Not a very good combination for a young parent. Had a problem with gambling. It was more kind of like a hobby, three to four hours a day, four or five days a week. <coughs> but I was making $10,000 a year playing backgammon, so I thought it was like a second job. 
Now, I had these problems, all of them, when I walked into Alcoholics Anonymous. And I don't think I even noticed them for almost my entire first year. I was just kind of on a honeymoon. I was so pleased, I was so thrilled with Alcoholics Anonymous and discovering the issues, discovering the program, and discovering the steps. It was kind of at the end of my first year that I started to get a concept of what my defects of character were, started to do an in- I had done an inventory, but my inventory that I did in my first year was just the heavy load of guilt that I brought into Alcoholics Anonymous. Gambling didn't even show up on the list, you know, when I'm doing my inventory when I'm six months sober and, you know, my denial and my lack of, my lack of information about myself was just awesome. I mean, it just, you know, uh, so I've got these issues and by the end of my first year I start to notice them one by one. I'm glad I didn't notice them all at once because I'm not sure I would have stayed. And it's, I'm going to talk now about some of the problems I've had in sobriety, and I, it, it's going to sound like my sobriety wasn't very good, and I, all I want to tell you is I think my sobriety was okay. Uh, I think it was just fine, and I wouldn't go back and change any of it if I could go back and change any of it. There's a freedom that you have with looking back on your life that is different than looking forward or looking right where you are right now. There are people who get up and take their first-year cake, and they thank Alcoholics Anonymous and their sponsor for their lives and tell how much different and wonderful it is today with their one year of sobriety. And then when they get up and take their two-year cake, they talk about how sick they were the first year and now it's better. <laughs> Looking backwards, there's a freedom that you have to take a look and see what you've gone through. And most of the time you don't understand what you've gone through it until you have some space with that experience. And I have that space and I'm going back and I'm looking at it. It looks different from this angle than it did when I went through it. I used to think in my immaturity, I thought recovery was the absence of problems. If you would have asked me to define recovery, that's how I would have defined it. I thought that being a good Christian was not sinning. I thought that recovery was sobriety, obviously, but not having any problems. I was so self-centered, it seemed to me that the people that I had for advisors didn't have any problems. Hell, they owned cars without loans in them, they had houses, they had jobs that they had for a long time. My whole life was kind of unstable and moving around, and their lives seemed to be much more stable. I know now that they were talking about their issues all the way through, but I was so self-centered I didn't hear them. I kind of excused the problems and issues they had, but for me, mine were more important. And I, you know, when you're looking at the world through your belly button, it has a different perspective, or your rectum. Uh, <coughs> rectal vision is different than... And I think that... what. Recovery is not the absence of problems. I think there's a way to tell if you're going to have problems, and the way to tell is if you're breathing, okay? Because I don't think we're exempt from problems. So I started to have these problems. I'm not telling the truth about them. I'm starting to, one by one, these issues are coming up. One by one, I'm taking them on, and I'm working like, man, I'm really serious about trying to get rid of my gambling, really serious about trying to get rid of my financial problems, change work, and I'm not making progress on anything. I make two steps forward, one step backwards, three steps backward, one step forward, and I'm doing a dance. And by the time I'm in my third year of sobriety, these issues are bothering me. When I'm in my fourth and fifth year, they're just eating my lunch. And all of a sudden, I'm feeling like, you know, maybe I've got problems other than alcoholism. Maybe I'm not just an alcoholic. You know, maybe I've got to go to Gamblers Anonymous or Spenders Anonymous or whatever the hell all this stuff is that's going on. I've always felt I was different, and now it seems like everybody else is lying. I've got pigeons that are making more progress in the program than I'm making. And uh, it's kind of hard to watch other people grow and you're standing still or going backwards. 
you stand in a club and a new person comes in and you get them a cup of coffee and you sit down and they tell you all those horrible things that got them to come to Alcoholics Anonymous and you say, hey baby, as bad as it is and as horrible as it seems, we're glad you're here. It's going to be okay. You sit down and you keep coming to meetings and you read the book and you get a sponsor and you stay sober for a while, it's going to be okay. You see that guy over there, God, his life was just a mess and now it's okay. Then I get in my car and I drive home at 10.30 at night and I say, when's it going to be okay for you, Bob? I mean, you're seven years sober. When are you going to learn how to work? I mean, you're, I don't think you're going to get an exemption. doesn't look to me like you're going to get an exemption. Everybody's got to learn how to work. When are you going to learn how to work? You charged a $400 sport coat today at the clothing store and you had a $600 bill. When are you going to stop spending money that you don't have to buy things you don't need? When are you going to start being a good husband? When are you going to be a good father? When are you going to stop gambling? I didn't have very good answers for these things. I was feeling six or seven years of sobriety, and I'm almost to the point where I'm either going to commit suicide or talk to my sponsor. You know, you're kind of right, you're flipping a coin, you know, it's kind of one of those... I don't know what it is, but we have such a sense of shame and guilt and that, you know, that we, we somehow think that there is a sense of dirtiness that I had. Uh, Frank Milos talks about that, and I, I just, I was ashamed of myself. And I, I had it figured out that if you get me sober, you get me well, and I'll take it from there. I thought that was my job. You get me sober, and I'll call these anonymous, and I'll manage work, and I'll be a good husband, and I'll be a good father. And, you know, now I'm sober. I'm active in AIM, starting to give talks. I'm active. I'm, start, I'm everywhere. God, I'm just on every committee, and I'm doing all this stuff. And it doubly seems, because I'm giving AA talks, that, you know, it seems like I'm kind of a phony, and I'm, <coughs> but I'm having a tough time. Now I know what the answer is. I guess in my heart of hearts, I've always known what the answer is. I think the answer is God. There are two reasons I think that I have 26 and a half years of sobriety. One of them is, is I don't lie well. I mean, I can and do lie, but I can't hide things very well. That's not making me a good guy. I just happen to be a guy who doesn't hide things very well, which is helpful because if you're talking to your sponsor, you're talking to your wife, and you can't hide things very well, I think you're less likely, you know, to have more secrets, and I think secrets get us drunk, and I, that just happens to be the way I am. The other thing is I've always been attracted to teachers in Alcoholics Anonymous. I've always just loved the older member of Alcoholics Anonymous, just to hang out at the meetings and listen to them, what they had to say, and because I had this gift that I was like these men and women, I knew what the answer was. The answer was to have a God of your own understanding. But there was a problem with that for me, because I've always believed in God and always had a fairly good spiritual background. The problem was that I'm going to go knock on the door and ask to have a relationship with God, and God's going to say, fine, but he's going to ask me to do a bunch of things I can't do. He's going to, you know, I'm going to knock on the door and say, God, I want a relationship, and he's going to say, okay, and I'm going to say, what, what should I do? He's going to say, quit gambling. Get up in the morning, go to work, stay at work. Don't spend more money than you make. Be a loving husband and be a loving father. I'm going to say, shit, if I knew how to do all those things, I wouldn't need God. You know what I mean? <laughs> what do you think I've been trying to do for the last, you know, seven or eight years? So my idea was, as soon as I get my life cleaned up, then I'll have a relationship with God. But how could you ever have a relationship with God when you can't fulfill the conditions of the relationship? Now, I was stuck in that place for almost two and a half years. And out of desperation, I went back again to the steps. And I went at eight years of sobriety and took step one and found out what powerlessness and unmanageability meant to me eight years sober. And I'll tell you, that was an easy one. I was powerless and my life was unmanageable. 
just no question about it. I was, I was feeling as bad about myself at eight years of sobriety as I did when I came into Alcoholics Anonymous. You know what I lost belief in? The second step. Came to believe that a part of reading ourselves would restore us to sanity. I believed that for us as a group and did not believe it for Bob as an individual. Because I'm eight years sober, I'm going to five or six meetings, I'm active in general service, I'm sponsoring people, I have a sponsor, I'm working the steps, and my life sucks. I owe as much money at eight years of sobriety as I did when I walked into Alcoholics Anonymous. My wife is not happy, I am not a good father, I got a gambling problem, I got bills, and it's not working. And I'm not pleased about it, and I'm not feeling very good about me at all, and I'm feeling like, you know, and I'm going to meetings with people that I'm at meetings with day in and day, and I'm saying, can't you see it? I mean, they're all saying, God, that Bob, isn't he great? God, he gives a good talk, and he's active in service, and boy, he's really a comer. And I'm saying, can't you see through me? I mean, I'm with you five days a week. I mean, can't you see that I'm in? I mean, don't you see any of this stuff that's going on? I mean, maybe we don't have the love and caring and insight. You know, you're starting to isolate. I'm starting to feel different. That was a magic thing that happened to me when I tore my wall down when I first came into Alcoholics Anonymous. I stopped being Bob, I became an alcoholic. I came, I think, with the expectation that I was going to find an expert on Bob. And that man was going to be able to look through my soul and tell me what to do, and I never found that man. What happened is I stopped being Bob and I became an alcoholic, and I found a man named Warren who knew a lot about alcoholism and a lot about the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And he started to teach me about the recovery program of AA. And there were plenty of experts in alcoholism. I started to ask questions and I got lots of answers. After I was sober about a year and a half, I started to ask questions and I got an answer and I wasn't sure they were right. I started to reassert my ego. And by seven years of sobriety, I'm feeling like no one knows anything about me and I'm back looking for an expert on Bob. And I'm not finding anybody. No one seems to know a hell of a lot about how special I am and how intricate my problems are. It's pretty tough. So I had a sober come to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity, and I made your sober. Because I don't believe it. I believe it for you. I believe it for us, but I don't believe it for me. And the way I came to believe that is I just, once again, was given the opportunity to open my eyes up and take a look around and start to watch the miracles that are going on all over Alcoholics Anonymous all the time. I started to see people with problems that were larger than mine, that were carrying them with more dignity and a smile on their face than I was whining and crying about my little problems. And I started to see the miracle again, and I came to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity at eight years of sobriety. I took the third step on my knees with my sponsor in his office. I had not done that before. It was awkward and somewhat embarrassing to me, but I didn't want to miss anything, so I did it. And I took a fourth step. I'd done two previous four steps. This is my third. <clears throat> I'd done them with clergy, and I decided I was going to do one with my sponsor. In my area, the tradition was much more to do it with clergy. And I went to my sponsor, and I said, I want to take a fifth step. And when you're done, be careful, because whatever you recommend for me, I'm going to do. I said, I'm really tired of being me. I said, I'm in a lot of pain, and I know it's kind of unnecessary for me to be in the level of pain that I am, but I just am ready to do, I'm ready to make some changes. And I said earlier that I thought that recovery was the absence of problems and it's not that. Sometimes in the middle of your life, in your, in your earlier years of recovery, it looks like you're almost going backwards. It looks like, to me, like I was getting worse rather than getting better. And I'll tell you something, if I said to Gary, Gary, tomorrow you and I are going to go to New York. 
before I said that to Gary, I mean, he's just going to hang out at the conference with Julie and they're going to drive her, fly home, or do whatever they're going to do. But once I tell him that we're going to go to New York, he's got to figure out how to get a ticket. He's got to cancel some engagements. He's got to find out what's in his way, what his problems and issues are. When you start your recovery, it's like a journey. And when you start that journey, you start to find out what's in your way. And usually it's treasures that are more like dog turds, but we hold them, hutch them to our breasts like they're treasured. And they're our possessions, and they're in our way, and they're blocks to our recovery. And the issues and stuff that I've been telling you were what was in my way to getting spiritually well and having a spiritual awakening. Each of us has a little different combination. I have the belief that anybody who's a real alcoholic, I don't want to imply that there's someone here that's not a real alcoholic, but usually our lives are so unmanageable that not only will you have a spiritual awakening and a surrender when you come in to take the first step, I think somewhere between your fifth and tenth year of sobriety, and don't hold me too closely to the time frame on that because I think it can be different, you're going to have another surrender. You're going to, it's like a second level surrender you're going to have to find out if you're going to play the game all the way. Because most of us are just not aware of how profound the game is. And we surrender, but we surrender part of it, mostly out of ignorance, because we didn't know the rest of it. And it's by the time you're five, six, seven, eight, nine years of sobriety, you, get, you start to find out that the physical part of alcoholism went away, but the mental and spiritual part resides and exercises itself in your psyche in a certain way. And you have to again find out that these things, are, to me, are part of the illness of alcoholism. They're issues that all human beings have, but they're especially deadly to us. And, and, and if you don't deal with this, you know, and most of us have one or two major problems. Some of us are kind of generalists and we got problems all over the place, but. Most of us have one or two elephants, a couple of dogs, the rest of them are cats and squirrels and mice and small stuff. But almost everybody's got an elephant. And somewhere between five and ten years, you've got to decide whether to get rid of the elephant. First of all, you've got to admit it's there. Everybody's been smelling the peanuts on his breath. You know, you've got an elephant in your living room and <clears throat> no one talks about it. You know, the rule is, you know, you don't call me on my stuff, I won't call you on your stuff. And we've got an elephant. And somewhere before you're 10 years sober, you've got to decide whether you're going to build a garage for the elephant or get rid of it. <clears throat> there comes a time in your growth where the responsibility of the wisdom and knowledge that you have in the program gets in your way and you have to choose. There comes a time when you just have to stop doing the crap. And if you don't stop doing the crap, you start to specialize and hang out with people who have your issues. And I don't know why it is, in my mind, that I was allowed to try and fail and try and fail and try and fail and try and fail during the first six or seven years of my sobriety and still be allowed to try and still be in the game and still have some growth available even though I was failing all the way through. But I think there comes a time where if you choose to keep your issues too long, you stop growing and then you're really in danger. And I reached that spot when I was eight years old. There just came a time where it didn't matter if I understood it. It didn't matter if I knew how. Because you know how most of us, <laughs> we protect ourselves with ignorance and apathy. We come to and we say, this is my problem. I don't know what to do. Ignorance. God, I don't know what to do. There isn't any of us that doesn't know what to do. I mean, there almost always when someone comes to me with an issue, I can say, quiet down, close your eyes, and pretend that I came to you with the problem you just came to me with. 
and advise me what to do. And it's amazing the wisdom that can come out of someone who's got that young a sobriety. We know what to do. And when you can't play, I don't know what to do anymore, you play, gee, I know what to do, I just can't get myself to do it. <laughs> so it's, you know, the guard dog at the temple, our ignorance and apathy, that's what we protect ourselves. But there comes a time where you just got to stop. And that time came for me when I took that fifth step with my sponsor. When I was done with that fifth step, he asked me to go to a clinical psychologist. I didn't want to do that, but I promised I would, and I did, and I got in touch with some stuff that changed my life again. I got myself with some stuff that I was able to bring back in the program. If you would have asked me one of my biggest issues in my life, I would have said it was anger. I would have said it was anger because of the violence that I had with my children, my wicked mouth, just my reflexes. All my life I had this reactive personality. If you ask me today what the issues are in my life, I would say fear. Anger was my response to fear. I was in situations that I, didn't, I was in front of and didn't know how to handle. And when I was in front of situations I didn't know how to handle, I would get angry. I got in touch with how afraid of failure I was. And I found out that most of my work issues were I was afraid to put it on the line and put it all out there because maybe I wouldn't be able to make it. All my life I was kind of the guy who would just do it part-time and I would do some of it okay and you'd say, God, that Bobby, you know, if he ever went to school, he'd be a hell of a guy. I was afraid if I ever went to school all the time, I just wouldn't be a hell of a guy, I'd just be average. So I liked you assuming that if I ever applied myself, that it would really be something. But I never wanted to put it all on the line because I thought maybe there was just a shell there that no one was home. Because I'm a guy that never finished anything. I went down with, to Notre Dame with 14 kids in my class at high school. I had the best test marks of any of them, and I was the only one who didn't finish. I don't finish anything. I test well, I look good, I interview well, I get jobs, but I don't do the jobs. I'm a guy that when I get into a two-mile race, I lead the race for the first, you know, I'm up towards the front for the first, you know, quarter of the race, but somewhere between half and three-quarters of the race, I fall down and hurt myself. So, gee, that's too bad about that guy from Minnesota. He's a real good runner. Must have pulled a hamstring. But if you would have followed me around in my life, you would have found out that I dropped out of every race somewhere between halfway and three-quarters. I don't finish anything. And I got in touch with how afraid of failing I was and I started to put that into my program and I found out that self-sufficiency was not enough. About a month after I took my fifth step and I started working with a psychologist, I was home in my living room reading some non-conference approved literature. <laughs> and it had been one of the lousiest days I've ever had in my sobriety. It had been a day that I went to work late, left early, went downtown, got into a Back at my game, I won 400 bucks. I missed dinner, I missed the meeting, I came home, got in a fight with my wife, and slapped one of my children. It was one of those nights where you would have liked to have had a videotape of that and sent it into general service to see what eight years of sobriety could do for you. <laughs> just the fear that someone's going to find out how you are, you know. I mean, just, you know, Jesus. And I sat down on my chair and I said, gee, it happened again. And I said, what do you mean it happened again? Weren't you there? <laughs> it's your life. <laughs> and I said, yeah, I'm there, but it's so habitual. It's almost like I go into a blackout. I mean, it's just it's automatic. I don't even have to think. These things are so grooved. But I just get it on track, and it's like I come to later. And all of a sudden, I realized that that was a bunch of malarkey. 
that my life was the way it was because it was carefully planned and designed. I sounded like a guy who wanted to quit gambling. If you really wanted to know who wanted to quit gambling, ask my business partner or ask my wife. I put up a hell of a lot of effort to maintain my gambling. What I wanted to do was to gamble whenever the hell I wanted to gamble for as much as I wanted to gamble with, for and not have problems because of gambling. I sounded like a man who wanted to get rid of his financial problems. I was a guy who wanted money without working. I wanted to buy whatever I wanted to buy whenever I wanted to buy it and not have money problems. I sounded like a guy who wanted to have a better marriage. I wanted my wife to love me and not spend time with her. I sounded like a guy who wanted to be a better father and I wanted my good relationship with my children without putting anything into it. There's a power in truth. When I came to Alcoholics Anonymous and took my first step, I looked at myself and my alcoholism naked in the mirror for the first time and I saw my life and saw my alcoholism in a way I had never seen it and my life changed that day that those men talked to me. When you stand in front of the truth, your life will change. That night in my living room, I stood in front of some truths in my life and my life changed again. I realized that I had tried as hard as I knew how to clean my act up and I had failed. And I was exactly where I was supposed to be and I was allowed to take the sixth and the seventh step of the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. Say I'd spent eight years trying to get rid of my defects of character. I don't have the power. I don't have the muscle. If I had the power to design my life, I wouldn't need the meetings. I would not need a higher power. I'd simply do it. I've always known what to do. I just have never done it. I do not have the power. And that night, I became entirely ready to have God remove my defects of character. And I humbly asked him to remove my shortcomings. And five of the major issues I was struggling with in my life disappeared. Such, I believe, is the, pro is the power that's available to us in God and in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, every time before that I've made promises to myself, I'd never kept them. I'm a guy that when I go on a diet, I first thing I do is I go buy a quart of ice cream and a bag of cookies. <laughs> it's the last day I'm going to eat. <clears throat> it's already been a bad day. I'm just probably not going to have ice cream for a couple of years, and I just want to finish off today. <laughs> And I've made a lot of promises to myself that I've not kept. And it was interesting, my surrender was deep enough that I started to put supports into my life. I made a deal with my sponsor about when I'd go to work and when I'd not go to work, when I'd stay at work. I gave my wife charge of her finances. My wife had, didn't have the ego issues with money that I had. She had this new technique where she could pay a third of a bill, damnedest thing I've ever seen. I, uh, <laughs> I quit gambling that day. And uh, I started to date my wife. I've dated my wife every Friday night for probably the last 19 years. And when I'm not home on Friday night, I do it a different night. See, I didn't want her love and attention. I had her affection with everybody else's affection I wanted. And I had to learn how to be with my wife. And I had to learn how to be romantic with my wife. So I started to treat my wife like I used to treat my wife. And I took her out. It was a real, live, dangerous date. No one else goes out on that date. We know that we have each other's undivided attention one night a week. I have spent thousands of dollars and hundreds of hours learning how to be a better parent. You know, we change in Alcoholics Anonymous. The doctor doesn't heal. It creates an aseptic environment. It creates an atmosphere in which healing can take place and God heals. And a farmer doesn't grow. He creates a, plants a seed in a fertile environment in which growth can take place and God grows and we don't change. We create an atmosphere in which change can take place, and it's the atmosphere, I think, of being honest, open-minded, and being willing, and the attitude involved in the sixth and the seventh step. 
for the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. We are the pipe, we are not the well. It happens through us, not by us. Our power is our weakness. Our power, one time Chamberlain went to that CCAT program or whatever that was in, down in Atlanta that they have for people who work in the field of alcoholism, and he never attended many things, to my knowledge, that were not Alcoholics Anonymous, but they asked him to do a presentation, and he did. And I happened to be at a conference just after that, and someone asked him how he liked this conference, which was all the leading experts in the United States or maybe the world on alcoholism. And he looked over at the man who was next to me, and he said, they don't know much about surrender. And in one sentence, he reached into the middle of the pile and grabbed the magic thread. They don't know much about surrender. What we're promised in Alcoholics Anonymous is a spiritual awakening. <clears throat> we're promised to be awake. Today I'm awake. I don't strike my children today. I still have a temper. I still am the same person that I was before in many ways. But I'm awake enough that I don't do the things that I used to do. You have awakened me where I have the level of responsibility that I don't do some of the things that I used to do. They are not available to me. I am not free to do them. Now, I still have a gift for being an ass, so don't get an impression that I <clears throat> don't put a ribbon on it from time to time, because I do. But there comes a time where you just have to stop doing some of the stuff you're doing because you know too much. This is a program about change. Sometimes today, activity in Alcoholics Anonymous reaches such a level that we start to judge that being a good member of Alcoholics Anonymous is how many merit badges you get, how many talks you give, how many people you sponsor, how many meetings you go to. <clears throat> Those are all fine things. But the measure of what it is to be a good alcoholic is how you are in your life. Ask your spouse. Ask your neighbor. Ask who you work for. <clears throat> ask people that you owe money to. Ask your children. Has AA made a difference? Is daddy or mommy better because they're an Alcoholics Anonymous? That's what the measure of the program is. It's meant to return us to life. There's a power in this program that is just, that is available to heal and touch anything that's going on in our lives today. I didn't believe the second step when I was eight years sober. I have never not believed that step. I have strayed occasionally from some of the issues and I've lost faith when I've had problems. My life so changed at eight years of sobriety that it just took off like in a rocket ship. I mean, this guy who didn't know how to work all of a sudden knows how to work, and I'm, I, I was, an awful lot of this had to do with being at the right place at the right time. We started a company and it was in real estate syndication. It was a big deal, and we grew a company that had 400 employees and syndicated a couple of hundred million dollars worth of real estate. Now I'm, I got a partner, got 400 employees, I've got a good relationship with my kids, I'm in love with my wife, I've you know, got all the, more money than I ever dreamed of, and all of a sudden they've changed the 1986 tax act. And um, it didn't happen immediately in 86, but pretty soon I literally lost most everything I had. And what was interesting about this is about 1988, I went to, I asked the man to be my spiritual advisor. And he said, what do you want to do? And I said, well, I, he said, where, where do you see yourself going? And I said, well, I said, I'm more competitive and materialistic than I would like to be. I would like to be less materialistic and I would like to be more loving. I said, there was a man in my life by the name of Bob White and everybody loved Bob White. And everybody felt when they were around Bob White that they were his best friend. 
And I said, I would like people to feel better about themselves when they're around me rather than me feel better about myself when I'm around them. I want to be more loving. And I want to be less materialistic. I have too much focus on money. <clears throat> and within about a week, I started to lose every goddamn thing I had. It was just, <laughs> I mean, it was, it was just fantastic. And I went back to him and I said, I wasn't specific enough. What I wanted to do, <clears throat> what I wanted to do was keep the stuff, but not be materialistic. And I, I, I didn't make that clear that, you know, that this was what, I mean, honest to God, it was so, and I owed more money, started to have some responsibility from partnerships, and I thought I was in pretty good financial position. All of a sudden, I had obligations, and I just was overwhelmed. Went into the depression. <laughs> I mean, it was just terrible. And I started to go backwards. I mean, I, when I started to lose my money, it was not like changing clothes. It was like ripping skin off my body. I mean, I can't tell you. I never realized how deeply vested in things that I was. And I had to find out who I was independent of things. And I'll tell you, that was a tough lesson. I wouldn't trade the lesson today for the money. There's a great story of a man who has some spiritual tapes that I listened to, and I'm going to tell you the story because it really is one of the most profound things that's happened to my life for the last 10 years. And it's a story about in India they have these men that are sannyasi. They are older men who have finished their lives and raised their children. And by tradition, when they're older and they reach a certain level of enlightenment, they simply travel the world, and the world is their home. They just take a begging bowl and a bag, and off they go from place to place. And one time this sannyasi was walking outside this village and a man comes out and he said, oh, I'm so pleased to see you. And the sannyasi says, why? He said, I had a dream last night that I was going to meet a sannyasi outside the village. And the sannyasi said, what did the dream tell you? And he said that if you gave me a stone that you have, that I would be the richest man in the world. So the sannyasi looked in his little bag and he pulled out a stone that was as big as a softball that was the largest diamond in the world. And he said, is this the stone? And the man said, yes. And he said, can I have it? He said, sure, I found it in the forest. And he gave the man the diamond. And the man went off as happy as anybody could possibly be. And he sat underneath a tree looking at this diamond. And the sannyasi went over and started to meditate under another tree. And about four hours later, the man with the diamond walked over to the sannyasi and handed back the diamond and said, could you please tell me give me the gift that you have that makes it possible for you to give me this stone. And that's the lesson that I have mostly learned. I'm not done with all my attachments. I'm, it's amazing how stubborn our areas are. But in substance, I have that lesson. And I would not trade the money for the lesson. I would take the money and the lesson. But... <laughs> but my biggest fear today is being poor and happy. <laughs> I was that guy that Gary Brown talked about this afternoon who he called up and sent the money to after I had helped him some years before. And that year, at the worst time in my sobriety, at the worst time in my financial condition, I had well over $25,000 come back to me from all over the country that just saved my ass at a time that you, you could not believe how badly I needed the money and people who just started to come back. I mean, it was just, so I'm, I mean, 
It's just amazing. So you're on a journey. You're on a path of spiritual, being spiritually awake. And the more awake you become, the better your life's going to be. These steps are spiritual exercises. They are not mechanical. There's a great tendency today in Alcoholics Anonymous. We have more formal teaching around the steps than we've ever had before, and I think most of it's wonderful. But there's a danger in some of the teaching that we're doing, and the teaching may be that, in, especially in your early sobriety, that you view the steps as being mechanical. They're not mechanical. As Don said the other night, sitting in a garage does not make you a car. You know, giving a harmonica to a monkey does not make him a musician. And I think there is always benefit, and for all of us to go through spiritual practice, I don't think that we could ever harm ourselves, and I think it's exactly what we're supposed to be doing. But if it were mechanical, every time I had an issue, I'd just have to say the third step prayer, and I'd have a song. And there's a lot of times when I have issues in all sincerity that I would like to have solved, and I say the third, prayer, third step prayer, and it seems like no one's home. There seems to be an attitude or a humility that you have to have when you take the steps a spirit that you have to have to have them work in your life. And because it's spiritual, you can't demand it on, by snapping your fingers. It's a profound deal. The way I try to maintain that attitude to the best of my ability is I try to have an attitude of a beginner. It's kind of hard to teach an expert anything. So I try to, try to, I try to listen. I try to be at AA events and with my sponsor in different situations, expectant that I'm going to learn something that I need to take home. I try to question my decisions and my thinking because I know that I have the ability to rationalize almost everything I do. I think a healthy questioning of your own self is pretty damn important. I think we are just blessed in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous to have the spiritual practice that we have in the 12 steps. I don't think that there's any that the power of God and the power of transformation in life is any more available any place in the world than it is in the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. I don't think you can see more miracles than you see daily in Alcoholics Anonymous. In closing, I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a man who invented fire. And a long time ago, and he took the fire to villages that did not have fire, and he taught people how to heat their homes and cook their food and use fire as a tool. And he literally transformed the lives of the people who didn't have fire prior to his coming there. When they turned around to thank the man, the man was gone because the man didn't want their things. He just wanted to bring him the gift of fire. But somewhere along in his travels, he went to a village, and the elders of the village thought that he was getting too much attention and too much influence over the people because he brought the gift of fire, so they killed him. But they were smart enough to know that the people were pretty upset about it, so they built an altar to honor the man. They put a picture of the man above the altar and they put the tools that he used to make fire under his picture. And they held regular services that were very well attended for years. But no one ever again made fire. There are places in Alcoholics Anonymous that you could go once in a while that you feel that you could throw gasoline in the room and match and you couldn't start a fire if your life depended on it. I'm here today because Two men in a booth in a cafe in 1967 started a fire in my life. Everyone in this room needs someone who knows how to make fire. I have two sons in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. They didn't want to learn it from me. They had to go out and find their own fire makers. And I am so glad that the men that they chose knew how to make fire, and they made fires in my son's life. Do you know how pleased I am that I was not allowed to be such an ass 
I could have been a big enough ass that my children would not want to come to Alcoholics Anonymous because of me. Do you know how I would? Do you know how crappy that would have been for me to have 25 years of sobriety and have my children hate who I was in their home that they wouldn't come for me? And it almost happened. But because of you, and because of a sponsor, because of having people in my life to know how to make fire, I have the gift. Find someone in your life that knows how to make fire. Thank you.